Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program. But there's some things that we know that we can do and do well. We can make sure that every woman who comes to Spelman graduates with a degree. We can make sure that we have a marriage between STEM and the arts. We can make that contribution to our community. I think we can make sure that every woman who comes to Spelman is a master of technology and masters uh, the kinds of tools and instruments that she's going to need to really be competitive out in the world. That's what Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell told me back in 2016 as she will become Spelman College's 10th president. Well, Campbell's retiring, and so now it's time for the exit interview. So much to talk about when she joins me in studio. And later, political scientist and author Yasha Monk talks about the primary tenets of a diverse democracy and the reasons behind, he believes, there's a so-called global recession of democracy. All, it's all included in his new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Conversation you don't want to miss. That's coming up. But first, this reaction to that leaked U.S. Supreme Court draft ruling that indicates a majority of the justices plan to overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, that's been a spark for protests across the nation, and that includes here in Atlanta. More than 300 marched through downtown Atlanta last night in response. Speakers said any abortion restrictions will have a disproportionately large effect on black women, as we hear from Emily Wu Pearson. Black women have the highest maternal mortality rates in the U.S., and that was top of mind for speakers at the abortion rights protest in downtown Atlanta. Mina Tarabi is a community organizer in Atlanta and wore a shirt that said, I stand with Planned Parenthood while addressing hundreds of protesters. In Georgia, black women die while giving birth. And when Roe v. Wade gets overturned, black women and brown women will be the ones criminalized. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, Georgia will be able to enforce a law that current Governor Brian Kemp signed in 2019 that bans abortion after cardiac activity is detected, which is at about six weeks. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. In other news, five of the Republican Senate candidates who are vying for the chance to run against Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock debated at the press club last night. As we hear from WABE politics reporter Raul Bally, the focus, of course, was the absence of Herschel Walker. Latham Sadler quickly summed up the thoughts of his fellow Republicans on the debate stage. Where the heck is Herschel Walker? (laughs) And how on earth does he think that he can beat Raphael Warnock in a general election? Gary Black talked about what he believes would happen if millions of dollars in negative ads are run against Walker. When they pour that on top of Herschel Walker's record that he's not been accountable for, of domestic violence, threats of shootouts with police, despicable business deals, and a a bloated resume, that's not going to work with the citizens of Georgia. In the wake of the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion on overturning Roe versus Wade, four of the Republican candidates said they would support a complete ban on abortion, including in the case of rape or incest. All five candidates have an uphill battle as Walker is always polled above the 50% he needs to avoid a runoff, while they have all polled in the single digits. Raul Bally, WABE News. And finally. Ah, yes. May the 4th be with you on this day. It's May 4th, remember? Yes, it is a day that Star Wars fans rejoice, rejoice. I'm not sure exactly what one does on this day, to be honest with you, but... May the Force be with you. 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 And there you have it. This is Closer Look.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As she addressed those inside the Georgia Royal Congress Center on April 9th of 2016, Dr. Mary McCampbell was set to become Spelman College's 10th president. And she reminded the audience of the historical significance and evolving mission of the women's, all-women's institution. We are rightly proud of being a leading liberal arts college that teaches our students to master critical thinking skills, tackle complexity and contradiction, that instructs them to write and think and speak with clarity and with the courage of her convictions. But the 21st century demands more. The 21st century demands that our women speak the language of technology fluently and creatively. We know the priorities of a new college president typically include implementing a new strategic plan. And enveloped in that plan, of course, are streamlining costs, capital campaigns for new academic and artistic centers, and increasing the institution's endowment, amid, of course, making the college experience a holistic one. But prior to 2020, I can tell you, dealing with the pandemic was not on any college president's list. And President Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell is among thousands of higher ed leaders who had to deal with this. Such a daunting task. And that's just one of many of our topics that we'll talk about. Dr. Campbell, set to retire. And by the way, we'll have a new building on campus named in her honor. Madam President, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I love being here. Thank you for inviting me back. You sat in this studio some years ago. I think it was even before the actual, all the, the, the gala and everything. You talked about the vision and the mission, continuing that. And then also you were so focused on technology, as I just played. And I want to get your assessment of, and I know the pandemic kind of threw <laughs> a curve in there, but of all of the priorities that you wanted to for this institution as you were president, would you, how would you assess what you were able to accomplish, you and your team? You, you know, you started out with this um, statement that I made at my inaugural that every woman who is enrolled at Spelman College should be able to complete her degree and finances should never get in her way. That has remained our number one priority and I can guarantee that when our new president comes in, that will continue to be the number one priority. We're very proud of the fact that, you know, our graduation, six-year graduation rate is 76%, but we won't be happy until it's 100%. Right now, that's 30 percentage points higher right now at 76 uh, for African Americans than the general rate for African Americans across the country and the highest of any HBCU. Mm -hmm. But that is our goal. Remove those financial barriers. Make it possible. If you've been accepted here, you should be able to go through to, to completion. As I mentioned, and I've said this before on so many occasions, there is not a handbook on how to deal with a pandemic. And I think any, any individual who was a leader, whether it's in higher ed or, or any entity that had to shift and help lead that transition, even just two years later, it's a lot better than it was in 2020. And I think you were one of the first presidents I spoke to, along with the, the president of Oglethorpe then. Uh, can you reflect on navigating through that for you and the institution? So we, I, I can remember the day as if it were yesterday in March 2020 when we announced to the campus <clears throat> and all the AUC campuses, we have to evacuate and we have to leave at least from now to the end of the semester. Little did we know that that was gonna last for a year. Mm -hmm. And when, we le when they left, we, of course, refunded the prorated amount of their room and board. Um, we were able to get some stimulus funds. We were able to clear some balances. And in that next year, that fall semester, when the students had to stay at home 
we discounted their tuition and fees by 14%. And I, I make note of that because Spellman took into account the fact that even though the families were not coming back and paying room and board, tuition still was a challenge. Mm-hmm. And particularly so in this era because their families you know, were facing uncertainty with jobs and employment, their own vulnerabilities from the pandemic. So I say all that to say Spellman took a very aggressive perspective on making sure that we could do everything we could to help our families keep our students in school. Have you had a chance, you or your team, to assess if you lost students that didn't come back, that left during the pandemic and that didn't come back? I don't know if y'all keep that data, but... Oh, we have to keep that data and report it to the federal government. But Knockwood, we won't have official numbers until October when we do our, our formal census. But right now, it looks very promising. We'll have almost 500 students who are graduating this May. Uh, we have a high, looks like we have a high rate of return on our students registering for the, for the fall. Mm-hmm. So it looks like some of these strategies that we have undertaken are, are working. I think I asked you this before. How did you personally assess your own self doing this leadership challenge? Because this was a challenge. And it I know you ch- have a cabinet and a team, but at the end of the day, they say this will happen under President Campbell. <laughs> it, it is true. The buck stops here. But I do have a team, and I have, a, I have a spectacular senior leadership team. So there were several ways. Number one was the, the medical. Uh, are we keeping our students in good health? That is certainly when they, they came back, make sure that we had a campus that was safe for them. And I'm very proud to say that the a, throughout the AUC, we kept our, our, our um, infection rates between 1% and 2%, which I think is historic for this I- entire region and certainly for the city of Atlanta. Um, but we also assessed things like how well did we make the transition from in-person teaching to um, virtual teaching. We had to train our faculty, train our students. We had to provide equipment. And so monitoring the teaching and learning as we were going through this. And I will say, you know, it was not, this was all brand new for us. And I think we did an absolutely first rate job in that. And, and the other thing is how, how well did we retain our students? And all of those signs are pointing in, in the right direction. I say that, however, with a caveat. Mm -hmm. This pandemic did real damage on the mental and emotional health of students, of faculty, of staff. That was my next question for you, to assess how you all were able, if you were able, at what would be an acceptable level to help your faculty and staff and students for those mental health aspect of it. That is a work in progress. And I say that because I think, first of all, once we returned to in-person teaching and learning, we had to take stock. Where are we? What, where, where are we in terms of our stress levels, our anxiety? Um, where are we in terms of understanding what kind of public culture we now need? What kind of gatherings do we require? What kind of healing opportunities do we require? We, this very morning, we just had a large conversation among our senior team about things we might want to do differently in the new year to make sure that we're on the lookout for anybody in our community who might be undergoing stress and maybe hasn't reached out. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to reach out to them. How did you handle it? Do you, can you share? Would you share? I, I, I will. You know, I, I, had the, I had the great benefit of having my life partner, uh, Dr. George Campbell, on campus with me. So even though we were sheltering in place, I did have a kind of companionship that, where we could both be honest with each other emotionally. I exercise every day. And I say that I'm 74 years old and I don't exercise as much or as hard as I used to. But every day I do something, and that's really important. I eat well. I think about what I'm, I'm, I'm eating. You know, um, don't go out for meals a lot. You know, eat real food. <laughs> and I get sleep. 
You know, I, I don't cheat myself of sleep. And, and I think this idea of giving yourself permission to take care of yourself, giving yourself permission to say no when you have to is extremely important. Because if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people and you can't really realize yourself in the fullest. The P word for pandemic. Also, we know about a polarizing political stretch, which we're still in, and then protests, you know, coming upon the heels of the, we know now the murder of George Floyd, obviously Ahmaud Arbery here in Georgia, uh, Breonna Taylor, so much of this was just happening in 2020 on top of the pandemic. You saw what happened here in Atlanta. And we know the force that the HBCUs historically have had in these type of movements. When you think about what the H, what the, HB, the role of the HBCU, HBCU institutions during a moment like this, how would you assess in 2020 what those students were able to do? Because we had a lot of young leaders out there. We had a lot of young leaders out there, and they, they, they suffered during, during this time. You may recall that a Spelman student and a Morehouse student mm-hmm. were assaulted by law enforcement um, officials. And that was... That was deeply traumatizing to them. It was also traumatizing to our community. Um, Our faculty gathered together virtually immediately and began putting together a bibliography of the kind of books and texts they thought the general public should read and they thought they should be reading for each other. They wrote a letter in support of the protest that was on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution mm-hmm. to make sure that our community understood that our faculty stood in solidarity, as did I and our administrators, with the protesters and with the um, indignities they were protesting. So I, 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 will, I am very proud of the way the Atlanta University Center stood up and made its voice heard. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with Spelman's 10th president, Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell, um, who is set to retire. We're calling this her exit interview, but it's not really official. <laughs> you talked about achieving some key strate- strategic initiatives, but I suspect with every outgoing leader, presidents, what have you, there are some things I said, you know what, I wish we could have tackled, but maybe the next president, or I know the next president will pick the mantle up on this. What would it be? So I have to I have to say all in all honesty, Rose, I, I'm I'm really very proud of the things that we did choose. So, you know, as a result of saying that, you know, making sure that every student can graduate, you know, we uh, increased full scholarships by three hundred and twenty-five percent. We raised hundred and thirty million dollars of new scholarship money. You know, we said we want to support our faculty more. Um, we got five endowed professorships, we got them development money. I said, I made the comment about technology. Um, Spellman's technology was quaint. And we now have underway a complete digital transformation of that, of that campus. It's affected our learning management system. We have automated cross-registration with the campuses throughout the AUC. We're going to, uh, this summer, upgrade our wireless. We're going to create a fiber optic ring around the college that will enhance our research capability with other colleges. We're going to be state-of-the-art. So did the <laughs> pandemic, in a sense, expose some of these issues for you all as well? Absolutely, because... In order to pivot and make this work, you have to have a workable technology solution. But the pandemic also meant that everybody was off campus. We dug up the entire campus and replaced all of our fiber optic network while people were off campus. So in that way, it also helped us. It also accelerated um, our move from unders of, of uh, really training our faculty to be digital so that we could launch our eSpellman, our online platform Mm -hmm. for adults. So although the pandemic was uh, an obstacle in many ways, in other ways, it made us move faster to get to some goals we were were after. How did you deal with challenges on a personal level? You know, I, I, I took great consolation from the fact 
that I was working inside of a community. And um, there was not one major crisis. We had a cybersecurity attack in the midst of mm-hmm. all of this. We had a cybersecurity attack, and they tried to hold us hostage and call for ransom. On Christmas Day of 2019, my entire senior team convened on Teams. And for the next two months, we worked this college out of that cyber attack without paying a dime of ransom and completely restructuring our cybersecurity network. I can only do that with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and Spelman has proven to be a community of people who are so committed to this mission and who love this college so much that I always felt that they were, I was shoulder to shoulder with them. Something else that happened, sadly, but thankfully no one was injured, were these threats of violence or maybe bomb threats to not just Spelman, but other HBCUs. And you can hark, and we know we can go back to the civil rights movement where there were just more than threats. So uh, Spelman College received three bomb threats, January 4th, February 1st, and February 8th. Uh, Clark Atlanta got a sh- uh, uh, an active shooter threat, and Morehouse got two bomb threats. HBCs used throughout the country were not only getting bomb threats, they were getting calls saying, don't let your students walk downtown because we're going to get them. So there was this environment of threat that descended on the HBCU community. And um, it required us to to really gather all of our resilience, our calm. I have an extraordinary public safety force, many of whom are actually trained in things like bomb threats. Uh, The city of Atlanta, our mayor, uh, Mayor Dickens, made sure the APD were on site with their bomb-sniffing dogs. The Atlanta airport sent out its uh, bomb squad. But still, even all that can be traumatizing for uh, a population, students who may not have experienced that. Some of us of a certain age and can have can live, can talk about living through the civil rights movement and others That's who right. have studied. So that That's right. Why There's, did you how did you calm the students and the, and the faculty and the staff through all this? Well, the first the, the first thing you have to do to calm your community is to make sure that you you're you're communicating well with your community. And Clearly, we had to do some upgrades on that. And we had to bring our, make sure everybody was on our alert system. We had to reinforce our training. We had to be out communicating with people on a constant basis. Uh, make sure that, that they felt and trusted and felt confident in our ability to respond to threats such as these. And that took a moment. Mm-hmm. But I think we have made enormous progress. We've engaged Homeland Security and the FBI and the Department of Justice to come in on campus and help us with that training. Let's talk about this uh, new $86 million Center for Innovation in the Arts. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I will tell you, the, the bud of the idea came for that. And you, you, you replayed my inauguration speech when I said every woman should be a master of technology. Shortly after I arrived at Spelman, um, I was able to um, send a group of faculty to NYU where they had an innovation center mm-hmm. and have them spend some time there. And they came back and they had religion. And they actually set up an innovation lab. It was about as big as a shoebox <laughs> on campus. We found some little room. We cleared it out, and we put it there. And over the, over the past six years, that has grown. Now it's in our science center with hundreds of projects where we have, we have provided the technology, the hardware and the software. And students come in with their ideas, and they can be from the biology department, uh, pairing up with a computer scientist and an artist, and coming up with extraordinary ideas that um, are have now gone into national competitions and international competitions. And we knew we had the idea of something, and that that idea for that innovation lab that's open to everybody became the core hub idea for our new building. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, will you all ever 
make it available for online students, for folks to get a complete degree online? So that's a very interesting question because right now you can take online courses and you can get certificates and credentials, but not degrees. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to predict that degrees are not far away. <laughs> but then, of course, I won't be here, so uh. I can... I can say whatever. <laughs> I want to go back to that, that Center for Innovation and Arts because the name on that building, <laughs> it's yes. not going to be Rose Scott, I can tell you that. <laughs> yes, my trustees voted to make it Mary Schmidt Campbell. What do you make of that? Yes, that, that floored me. I, as, as I've said before, I'm not a crier, <laughs> but that one got tears. <laughs> you mentioned George. Dr. Yes, George. Dr. George. Uh, also your running buddy. Yes, right. <laughs> and you have three sons, I believe? We have three sons. We've been married for 53 years. It'll be 54 in August. Uh, we have three sons. They're all grown. They all have wives. And I have seven grandchildren with an eighth on its on the way. So what does one now do after they leave <laughs> SC 10th grade? Spend time with, the, with George and the grandkids and the kids or... I know you are a love. You are more than a lover of the the arts. You are a, a you're an encyclopedia, first of all. <laughs> but this has been an institution. This is a space for you that you love. Yes, you love art. It is, and and in fact, I have uh, three commissioned pieces of writing on the arts and artists and patrons of the arts that I'll be finishing up. That will take me at least to the end of the year. So I'll be busy. <laughs> My final question to you, then, how do you sum up this chapter in your life as Spelman College president? Oh, this was a highlight of my life. Um, when I first was interviewed by the search committee and I went around the table and I asked each of them to tell me why they came to Spelman College, why they were connected, and I listened to the stories of this incredibly diverse group of people. And then when they finished, I said, I want to be part of this community. And uh, I have learned as much from them, and they have given as much from me as I hope I've, I've given back. Speaking of community and the historic West Side, it's changing, like a lot of neighborhoods in Atlanta. And you even talked about in your inaugural address about preserving the legacy and the history and the residence of what the West End has meant, not just for Spelman College, but the mm -hmm. entire AUC do you have concerns about what that will look like in maybe a year, two years, five years? I think one of the major responsibilities of the Atlanta University Center will be to make sure that we continue to anchor that community in the current residents and, and businesses. Um, one of the things that I'm very proud of with Spelman is the relationship that we've established with the Atlanta public schools in that neighborhood. Um, we decided several years ago when principals came to us and told us that the, the most serious problem they had was teaching their students to read. Mm -hmm. We responded with spell reads and we started out, you know, tutoring about 100 students. We'd, we'd send about 100 students and about three schools to tutor about 100 students. We now are reaching 500 students in five schools in our district and we're adding to that something called Math Corps, mm -hmm. which will use at the expertise of our students, the brilliance and expertise of Spelman students, to enhance math proficiency, just as they did for literacy. Graduation commencement next weekend? Yes. You're going to cry. Oh, we'll <laughs> see. But I have, I, I have a great uh, graduation speaker, Stacey Abrams, and uh, honorary degree recipient, Elizabeth uh, Alexander, who's the head of the Mellon Foundation, and Hannah Sharif is getting our mm -hmm. national award. She's a, a artistic director of one of our major regional theaters, so very exciting. But none of those speakers are as, you know, I mean, Clayton State has a pretty good speaker this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I may know her. <laughs> Well, we're excited because we have a, a homegrown speaker. Yes, you do. I guess for the last time, Madam President, Mary Schmidt-Campbell, thank you for taking the time. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this year, the results of an NPR poll revealed something which may not be surprising, and especially coming off a wild and for some wacky 2020 presidential election outcome that fueled a horrific and violent attack on our nation's capital. Now, the poll results indicated that 64 percent of its respondents agree that American democracy is in crisis and at the risk of failing. But that was bested by 70 percent feeling the same about America itself. Of course, the poll came a year after the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack. And for some of you, this may be subjective. Not sure, but we'll talk about it. When defining the tenets that best describe an effective and diverse democracy, is there an answer for sure? I don't know. Well, it's an ideology that political scientist and author Yasha Monk explores in his new book, The Great Experiment, why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure. And before y'all send me emails, let's listen and hear him out. He'll be in conversation live and in person next week at the Atlanta History Center. But first, our conversation, one of our own. Yashimaka joins the program now. Welcome. Thank you so much. You're a brave man writing about democracy. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's well, let, go ahead. Well, it's certainly, uh, uh, you know, is a depressing topic, but at least one that people care about right now. So. But let's let's go back to January 6th of 2021. And, and Yasha, what, what were you doing? When did you find out all this was taking place? And what was your your thoughts back then? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I was a grad student in political science, I learned that uh, there's lots of countries in the world where democracy is unstable, where events like this happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also learned that there's some countries where that's not supposed to happen. Uh, countries that are pretty affluent, but have a long democratic history, even if an imperfect one. Uh, and so if you fast forward the history of the United States by 25 or 50 years, you really don't need to think that something like this could possibly happen in America. And I actually made my name as a scholar by uh, doubting that consensus, by saying that we're seeing the rise of these authoritarian populists around the world, of people like Narendra Modi in India, of Recep Erdogan in Turkey, of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who really are challenging the fundamental uh, parts of our political system mm-hmm. and who are saying, look, you know what? I truly represent the people. I really speak for the people. And anybody who disagrees with me is wrong, is a traitor. Um, and for me, uh, uh, January 6th was less surprising uh, because of my focus on that. Because if you come in like Donald Trump, saying that you alone truly represent the people, that anybody who disagrees with you, disagrees with you is illegitimate, um, that pushes you to saying, how can I lose an election? If I lose an election, I'm the people, I speak for the people, so there must be something wrong with the election, there must be fraud, there must be something else going on. In that sense, I was very saddened by January 6th, but I wasn't altogether surprised. So you say you wasn't surprised. Are you surprised then that even here on this day, May 4th, 2022, we are still, because now we're in a major election year, and folks are still using not only January 6th, but saying that the presidential, the 2020 presidential outcome was not fair, that it was stolen, that it was fraudulent, and that there is a, a surprisingly large percentage of folks who actually believe that, and that believe that, that, that President Donald Trump had it taken from him. So, so I'm somewhat surprised by how widespread that view is. But actually, when you go back uh, in American history for the last 20 or 30 years, there's always been a significant percentage of a losing party supporters who said, this president is illegitimate. Um, so, so that's not entirely new. What I think is different is the attempt by uh, you know, institutional players with real power uh, to undermine trust in the electoral system. So in fact, there's a lot of people saying, that's not my president, he's elected illegitimately. That's not entirely new. But the fact that you have people running for secretary of state in all kinds of uh, states across uh, America saying the 2020 election was stolen and uh, it, when it comes to 2024, I'm not going to certify the election under similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make my own determination of who truly won. And the way in which that actually threatens uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the integrity of uh, making sure that the person with the most votes in a particular state actually gets the electors from that state, that to me is is, is a new development that, that is even more concerning and that is more surprising as well. 
the your book and the premise around it also not just talks about you know, what these tenets are, as I call them, of, of a diverse democracy. But you're also talking about why in, in some nations and, and, and in some societies, it's falling apart. So let's start, I guess, with the bad first. Is it falling apart because of the political leaders at the top or the people who have the power to elect those leaders don't feel empowered, if that makes sense? Or is it just a combination of both and everything in between is just messed up? Well, it's a little bit of both, but um, you know, when you look at the history of deeply ethnically and religiously diverse societies, uh, you have democracies that were very screwed up. You had democracies that perpetrated deep injustices, like the American Republic in the first centuries of its existence with slavery and Jim Crow mm-hmm. and so on. But you also had lots of non-democracies that had similar problems, right? Um, and so I think that there's something deeper in human psychology going on here. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is of the social psychologist Henry Teifel, who wanted to understand what it is about groups that makes the members so willing to favor the in-group over anybody who doesn't belong. And Mm -hmm. he thought he was going to create these groups that were so silly, they were so devoid of meaning, that the members wouldn't actually uh, favor each other. And so he got a bunch of kids into the lab, and he showed them a sheet of paper with about 150 dots on it. And he said, guess how many dots there are? And some said 120, some said 180. He divided them into underestimators and overestimators and had them play games against each other. And it turned out the underestimators started to discriminate against the overestimators. And the overestimators discriminated against the underestimators. So he failed in creating a group that was so silly that it wouldn't be motivating in that sort of way. But it showed us something very, very important, which is how easily that kind of group formation can take place and uh, how strongly it pushes people uh, to those kinds of behaviors. And so we've seen again and again in history that some of the worst injustices uh, pitted different groups against each other, often along the lines of race, ethnicity, religion, mm-hmm. uh, culture, uh, that caused some of the worst wars, civil wars, genocides, forms of ethnic cleansing uh, throughout history. That is why it's actually hard to build diverse societies and diverse democracies. Well, in fact, you take the reader through these different phases and you you start with history. And, and, I, and I guess for most folks, that's understandable because in order before you start talking about the process or the vision or the optimism, you also have to paint sort of how we've gotten here as a society overall. What do you think people get wrong about what a, quote, diverse democracy should look like? Oh, that's a great uh, that's a great question. I think um, there are two ways of going wrong. So one is a way that perhaps I myself thought in the past, which is to say uh, groups have wreaked such terrible damage in in history. You know, so many of these worst conflicts were because it was my group against your group. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps we should get people to give up in groups altogether. Perhaps the future should be one in which people just identify as individuals or perhaps it's kind of cosmopolitans who care equally about everybody in the world, mm-hmm. uh, rather than as members of particular religious or ethnic or cultural groups. And I think that that is unrealistic um, because uh, most people uh, do give great importance uh, to the culture of the parents, to their grandparents, to mm-hmm. the religious beliefs they have, of course, and to some extent also uh, to their ethnic group, especially if that ethnic group has uh, experienced uh, oppression in the in the past. And that's something that also can make up the richness of a country. I think one of the wonderful things about America is that it does contain these groups. So that's one error. Now, the other error is going to be other extreme. It is to say we should give up on having a, a common culture and a common country uh, altogether. And you see in countries like Lebanon uh, uh, what the impact of that is, because mm-hmm. it basically means... Uh, that all of your life uh, opportunities are constrained within your group, that members of these different groups can't uh, be meaningful friends, they can't marry each other, they can't be business partners together, Um, that sometimes even the laws to which you're subject depend on the group into which you're born. And so that's going in the other extreme. Mm -hmm. So I think we need a society in which we recognize the the dignity and the importance of groups, but base the society on the rights and the Uh, duties of individuals so that I have the ability to remain a member of my group, but I can also leave my group. I can also strike out my own. I can also disagree with my parents about the kind of life I want to live. And that double liberty has to be at at the base of our society. But our lived experiences that we all have, and we all have different lived experiences, and it could be from how we're raised in a certain community. It can be from what we gather from our parents. 
So it sounds like also you're saying there needs to be this level of acceptance. Some will say maybe tolerance, because when you say tolerance, that's kind of that's still sort of a, a, a word that's like, well, I don't want it. It sounds begrudging. Yeah, right? you're still wrong, but I'm, you know, so acceptance of the different ideologies. But that can be problematic, too, because in, at some point when it comes to the democratic process of electing leaders, leaders have to give or these candidates, they have to lay out what their ideology is. And even if they say, but I'm tolerant or I'm accepting of this other, these other folks, for some who want to follow them, they say, it's not good enough. You need to come out against this and come out against that. And that's a problem. And I know we're not going to solve this in the last 15 minutes, Yasha, <laughs> but that is at the core of why there's, there's so many issues when it comes to how we should be living as a, in a democratic state, small d. Yeah, you know, it's funny you talked about how experiences shape how we see the world. Um, uh, and there too, there seems to me be sort of two relatively uh, extreme positions where uh, some people say, we don't, you know, we're all equal and, and, and we don't have to listen to each other particularly because it doesn't make a difference who you are in this society. And that's clearly wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the experiences that somebody has in, as a woman in our society or as a black person in our society are different. Uh, from the experiences that I have as a as, as a white man. Now, I think there's also another extreme which says that we'll never be able to understand each other and we'll never be able to communicate. Um, and so we should simply sort of defer to each other or defer to uh, the positions or, or, or the views of those who are sort of most oppressed. But I think that understates the extent to which we can communicate, to which mm-hmm. I can, for example, listen to the experiences of, of my female friends. And when they say that they're being harassed in particular ways on the subway or on the bus, mm-hmm. I may not know exactly what that feels like, but I know enough about what that feels like to understand that that's an injustice and that in the kind of society I want to live in, uh, that injustice shouldn't, shouldn't be there. So we can have a much more substantive form of political solidarity, which is based in listening to each other, which is always going to be a difficult thing, um, but which is possible. So I, I'm hoping for... Uh, form of political solidarity, and we'll never get there entirely, mm-hmm. um, but in which uh, we actually have shared ideals and we listen to each other enough, but we won't completely agree, mm-hmm. but we have some amount of real grace, we have some amount of real compassion for each other's uh, experiences and points of view. I have an email from a listener that says, Rose, in the era of gaslighting and conspiracy theories, we will never get to logical consensus ever. Can you make of that? Well, look, I don't think we'll ever get to logical consensus. Politics is never entirely logical and <laughs> democratic politics has never been logical. Um, uh, I do think we sometimes underestimate uh, how irrational people have been in the past. So, for example, uh, you know, I, I hear from a lot of my friends and, and they have a point that the rise of social media and, and the Internet has made it easier for these crazy conspiracy theories to mm-hmm. spread. And, and there's a truth to that. Uh, But when you look at serious polls, about 10% of people today uh, believe in something like QAnon. About 10% of people in 1999, when the internet was really in its infancy, believed that the moon landing was fake. Um, So we've had these deeply irrational beliefs in our politics for a long time. We'll continue to have them. The important thing is to be able to win over the majority of people. Um, who, who decide elections. Um, uh, I worry less about the Trump superfans mm-hmm. than I worry about some of the people who may have voted for him uh, begrudgingly or may have voted for him because we believed some of his outsized promises. We need to be able to reach those people in order to make sure our democracy is safe. But the, the, the real Trump superfans, they're never going to change their mind. And that's fine. It's about the majority of society. If this is a quote, and I, and I read this was part of into the core of your book, if you know, if we're experiencing this global demo- recession of democracy, what role can super nations play in all this? Particularly when you look at the U.S., because we get, as some folks would say, we have our own issues. So how can we be a template, or, you know, or, or a blueprint for other nations? Although some would argue it's it's better than than a lot, but still, you know, we have our issues as well. What role can the U.S. play globally in terms of being this this model for for a democratic state? Yeah, look, I mean, I certainly think that uh, because of the problems in the United States, we don't get to go around and tell other people uh, what to do. And uh, that point has been true for a long time, but it's particularly true after four years of uh, Donald Trump. Um, so the best we can do is to sort out our own society. 
Um, uh, but at the same time, we should also recognize that by the standards of uh, world history and the standards of our own history and the standard of many other societies in the world today, uh, what we're doing in the United States is quite remarkable. We certainly don't have true equality, mm -hmm. um, but we are closer to having real equality between uh, different ethnic and religious groups uh, than, than most societies in the history of the world. And we have, despite significant step backs and despite uh, the threat from uh, uh, a Republican party that is less and less committed to democratic norms, uh, made some significant progress uh, on this over the last decades. I think um, when you compare uh, what America looks like today to what it looked like 50 or 100 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, that's a stark uh, contrast. And even though we need to be very upfront about the injustices today, I think we're actually uh, not being true to the suffering of past generations mm -hmm. uh, when we talk as though there had been no progress. Well... In your book, you are challenging the reader to understand what role citizens and policymakers can play in all this. Let's start with the policymakers, because for some, therein lies the problem. <laughs> for some, therein lies... <laughs> for many. Yeah, therein lies the problem. If I, I asked you earlier what folks get wrong about a diverse democracy. Well, let's talk about some of the tenets, then, of an effective diverse democracy. What's at the top of that list? Well, I think the background conditions have to be there, right? If I feel really frustrated in the world, if I have a sense that um, I'm not doing better than my parents were and I'm worried about my children's fate um, and I know that if I get sick tomorrow, I might go bankrupt and the politicians aren't listening to me and everybody hates each other, you know, I switch on cable news and everybody's just shouting at each other, uh, that puts me in a bad place. And so then when a neighbor moves in and perhaps that neighbor is an immigrant and has a slightly nicer house and a slightly bigger car, uh, I might say, why does he deserve that? Mm -hmm. right? Why does he live better than me? This, this seems wrong. Um, if you live in a society in which most people have a sense that they're making economic progress, they might not have everything they want, they might not be billionaires or even millionaires, but uh, they lead better lives with more opportunity than their parents did. And they're optimistic for their children. They know that there's uh, a welfare state in place, which ensures that when they get sick, uh, they're taken care of. When they're old, they're going to have a decent life. They have a sense that there's politicians who who listen to them and uh, that they are, uh, you know, taking seriously uh, uh, by the elites of a country, that mm -hmm. they're respected. That makes it much easier to say, hey, this new neighbor comes in and perhaps they're different, perhaps they're an immigrant, but I'm doing well and I wish them well too. But you also make a point to tell the reader that it's not just one particular one particular major party it's it's in a sense the two major ones obviously in the u.s are democrats and, and republicans you make clear to the reader that both have some work to do in terms yeah of, and i think go ahead and one of the areas on that i think is uh, this belief that demography is destiny which has become uh, shared it's the one thing that conservatives and liberals or democrats and republicans still agree on um, and I think it's uh, actually a pernicious view of the of the future. Um, uh, it drives a lot of a demographic panic on the right and the far right. We think, oh my God, you know, the country is changing, and uh, our base is white voters, and so as white voters become less influential, we're going to lose elections. I think it also drives some of the uh, triumphalism on parts of the Democratic Party who think that the only uh, need to sort of uh, mobilize the core voters, whom they often misunderstand, they assume they're very progressive when, when that's not necessarily the case, um, and victory is going to fall into their laps. Now, I don't want to live in a country in which I can walk down the street of Atlanta and know who you're voting for by looking at the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. I don't want a country in which the main political division is by race. That is the case to some extent today, but not as fully as people think. We've started to see a little bit of change in that, uh, actually, uh, Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 election because he significantly increased the share of the vote among every non-white demographic, among African-Americans, but particularly among Asian-Americans and especially more, even more among, among Latinos. And I actually think that that is a positive development. We want a political system in which both parties genuinely try to appeal to voters uh, of any ethnicity. As we wrap up, uh, Yasha, what, what has drawn you to this work? in this space here as a political scientist and author? 
well, listen, I come from, from a family that has experienced what uh, it means when diverse societies fall apart mm-hmm. uh, for, for generations that have yeah. uh, been murdered, that have been expelled from their country. Um, and so this is a topic that's, that's, that's very personal to me. And as a new American citizen, I'm very aware of what it meant in America's past when we, when we got uh, this, this, this question wrong with, with slavery and Jim Crow and other injustices. So, um, you know, if we want to uh, keep off the danger to our democracy, we need to actually have an idealistic forward-looking vision for society that most of us would actually be excited to live in. And that's what I've tried to, to, to create in, in, in this book, in The Great Experiment. It's called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. The author is Yasha Monk. He'll be in Atlanta next week. Maybe I'll pop over and see you at the Atlanta History Center. Thank you so much for taking the time. Fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, but Daniel Rezell was at the board today. And Daniel, you did good. We stayed on air, right? I love that. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Now stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.